Good morning. Hope you've all had a great week. Be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Thank you to Bruce and Pam for doing music for us today. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and once again, the opportunity we have to come together to worship you, Lord, we praise you for this church, Lord, for the people that we have in this church, and Lord, we pray that as we go through life, as we walk with Christ and do it imperfectly, Lord, that we would be works in progress, Lord, who are growing in love for you, in knowledge of you, and serving you. Lord, we want to continue to pray for this little child, Winston Kaufman had this terrible diagnosis of cancer. Lord, we want to pray for him. We want to pray for his recovery, for his treatment. Lord, we also pray for his parents, what they're going through in this time. Lord, we pray for his siblings. Lord, we, we pray for all of them. Lord, for your, for your hand to be with this family. Lord, we also want to continue to pray for Ruby Kaufman. She's in the hospital and recovering. And Lord, we want to pray for her for a speedy recovery to be back home very soon. Lord, we once again pray for our time today as we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I think of some of the great figures of American history and the many great things they did. George Washington was a college president, and he had been a delegate from Virginia at the Continental Congress. If he had just stopped there, that's a pretty impressive life, at least by worldly standards. But then those aren't the most significant things he did. He was the commanding general of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War and then served as our first president. Dwight D. Eisenhower was also a college president, but that was after serving as America's 34th president. And the most significant thing he did in his lifetime, he was the commander of the Allied forces during the Second World War. It's a pretty impressive life when you become the president of the United States and that's not even your greatest accomplishment. Thomas Jefferson founded a college, the University of Virginia. He was also governor of Virginia. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was America's first secretary of state. He was a vice president, and finally, he was president. In the Bible, I think of the life of Abraham. I think of all of the substantial aspects of his life, the great things that the Lord did through him, he was the man whom God had chosen with whom to make a covenant. The New Testament uses that faith as an example. He uses the covenant that he made with Abraham, through which he had promised land and offspring and blessing. Somehow I missed a page. He uses Abraham's faith as an example in the New Testament for what faith in Christ and salvation by the gospel looks like. He's the one through whom the 
covenant sign of circumcision was given. And those aren't even all of the important things he did. Abraham is an important Old Testament example of hospitality as he hosts three angelic visitors in Genesis 18. He displays great faith and action when he shows willingness to sacrifice his promised son Isaac in Genesis 22. And there are still other examples to which I could point. Paul talks a lot about Abraham in Galatians 3. And with all of the important things associated with Abraham, as we've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians, we've primarily focused on his faith. But in today's section, Paul is talking about the binding force of God's covenant that he had made with Abraham. And by the way, I feel like I use the word covenant a lot. A biblical covenant is a formal agreement between two parties who make various commitments to each other, where there are various promises, commitments, and expectations associated with the covenant. In the Bible, covenant language most often gets used to describe the covenants that God makes with his people, and ultimately the new covenant ushered in by Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. Before we get to our passage today, let's take just a couple of moments and talk about the Lord's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Lord first calls Abraham and makes a series of great promises to him. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As the Lord further elaborates on these promises, it will revolve around land, offspring, and blessing. As I said a few moments ago, in Genesis 15, we see Abraham's belief in the Lord and God's promises credited him as righteousness. Paul will pick up that example in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And faith and the covenant are linked together. And Paul's point is that the faith Abraham had is the same faith by which all who believe can be declared righteous. In Genesis, we see the talk of blessings promised to Abraham because of his faith. In Galatians 3, Paul looks to our faith and points to how that is the basis for our receiving the blessings which were promised to Abraham. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is that those who have faith in the gospel are united with Abraham. It's not because of Abraham, it's because of Christ. But as Abraham was set apart for God's great purpose and great promise, we become children of Abraham because of our belief in the same promise. In Judaism, 
both historically and today. They looked at themselves as the literal descendants of Abraham. And that's true from a physical perspective. But Paul says that what matters most of all is that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham through a shared faith. Because it is through the gospel that the nations are blessed. And the greatest example of that blessing is that people of all backgrounds, people from all nations, people of all races, all types of people would know the salvation that Jesus gives. That the gospel is meant for all mankind, everyone who believes. It's a worldwide message. And when we come to faith, we enjoy the same blessings Abraham enjoyed. Again, not because of Abraham, not because of ourselves, but, we have a, but because we have a great and merciful God and because his son went to the cross. In last week's passage, Paul again reminded us that there were people who opposed the message of grace. They looked to Moses and to the law and trying to earn favor with God based on adherence to the law. And that will not ultimately work because we sin and cannot follow the law. And with that, we come to our passage. And the main point of our passage today is that the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. And we'll be looking at this passage today in three scenes, three parts. An unchangeable covenant, an unbreakable promise, and an imperishable inheritance. And with that, we'll jump into our section. First point, an unchangeable covenant. Paul begins this section with an illustration about covenants. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul is using legal language to consider God's covenant. If someone makes a will, that's a binding legal document. Wills are generally hard to challenge. To contest someone's will, you have to prove either that they were not of sound mind when they made the will, or that the will that's been presented is some sort of forgery, or that the person didn't make the will of their own free will. That's hard to prove. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, they too had similar provisions for a person being able to leave their property to other people. Judaism also had laws for leaving possessions. So that wasn't a foreign concept to Paul's audience. It would have been familiar to the Galatians, just as it's familiar to us. And so for that reason, it's a perfect illustration. You can't just change or amend or nullify someone else's will. You can't just change someone's legal arrangements because you don't like them or because something else suits you better. And what Paul is saying is that we can't do that with a man-made agreement, with a man-made covenant, and then we certainly can't do it or nullify a divine covenant. And really, that's true for all of God's word. If it doesn't suit us, if it doesn't fit our preferences, we can't change it. That's one of the things I love about this passage, the reverence it has for God's word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. 
Do you view your Bible with that same reverence? How do you view this book? Some look at it just as some fables or good moral lessons. Others want to just pull a verse here or there that suits their situation. Or do you revere the Bible as the eternal word of God? Because in fulfilling this covenant through Christ, we see a continuity in the storyline of the Bible. I think we have a tendency to just kind of look at the Bible like it's a bunch of stories. But ultimately, it's one story with many scenes. I think of a great epic like The Lord of the Rings. You have lots of great individual moments, but it's ultimately one story leading up to one point. Everything in the Bible revolves around God's redemption through Christ and the renewal Jesus brings in our lives and which he will bring to completion at the end of the age. As I've already said, the covenant which the Lord had made with Abraham is not because of Abraham. It wasn't because of Abraham's goodness. And it wasn't something that even Abraham would have had the ability to nullify. It was based in the character of God and ultimately in the saving work of Jesus. In Genesis 15, after the Lord declares Abraham righteous because of his belief, we see a very interesting ceremony. The Lord has Abraham sacrifice a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And when Abraham sacrificed these animals, he was to divide them in half. Now, by our standards and sensibilities and things that we do, it's odd. It's not something that we would do. But the covenant was made by a blood sacrifice. It is a shadow of the greater reality and the ultimate sacrifice which would happen on the cross at Calvary when Jesus Christ, the true lamb, would be led to slaughter. But back in Genesis 15, we see a picture of this sacrifice ceremony. Genesis 15, 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The fire symbolized the presence of God. The Lord passing between the sacrifices is God ratifying the covenant. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abram, it says in this text, at this point in his life, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham and nothing can overturn that because God has obligated himself to that covenant by his own name and by his own character. The real wonder is that, the real wonder in that is why God would show his grace to a man who didn't deserve it, Abraham, to a nation who didn't deserve it, Israel, and to a world that didn't deserve it. One thing that has never changed both in the days of Abraham and the days when Paul was writing, and even up to today, is that the Lord has always been gracious. The promise made to Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We come to our second point, an unbreakable promise. Verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And really, the key word in that verse is the word offspring. Most English translations use either the word offspring or the word seed in this verse. Now, there are verses in the Old Testament when the word offspring is used, and it's referring to one person. Genesis 4.25. This is after Cain kills Abel. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth is the specific offspring in this passage. A really important verse in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. It's a verse that's looking forward to the future king of Israel. It's a promise that's made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That's a verse that's looking forward to one offspring. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in Christ. He is the future offspring of David. But there are also passages in the Old Testament where the Lord speaks to Abraham about the promises to him and his offspring. Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So that's the Lord talking about the promised land when he says, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Is that one offspring or many? Genesis 17, 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Once again, is that one offspring or many? Grammatically, either is possible, and that's actually true in Hebrew, Greek, and English. Robbie is my offspring. That's true. It makes sense. That's the word being used to apply to one person. But it's also true if I were to say, my sister and I are my father's offspring. There the word is being applied to more than one person. Same word. Now, when you look at the Genesis passages, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. An obvious way to interpret this is that the offspring is referring to many that it's referring to the Israelites. And that's true. But as with so many promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, there's a double fulfillment. The offspring is Israel, but the true promises of God ultimately points us to the true offspring, Christ the Lord. Back in our passage, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so Paul is pointing to Jesus as the true offspring and the true fulfillment of the divine promise to Abraham. The promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. 
we come to our third point, an incorruptible inheritance. In verse 17, Paul returns us to the idea from the beginning of the passage, where he's talking about how the covenant cannot be annulled. And it's important to remember that Paul is writing Galatians in response to people who had tried to impose Old Testament law, people who wanted to impose the law of Moses onto gospel-believing Christians. In our passage, our point, as I've said over and over again, is that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. Against the detractors, Paul will argue in verse 17 that the covenant with Abraham predates the covenant with Moses and therefore has precedent. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Why doesn't the law annul the covenant? Because it can't. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The purpose for the law was never meant to supersede the covenant. It was never meant to supersede the covenant with Abraham, nor was it meant to replace the covenant with Abraham. <clears throat> Again, the law does plenty of important things. I said some of these last week, but I think it bears repeating today. The law reveals the, the holiness of God. It reveals God's desire for his people to live holy and set apart lives. The law showed Israel what God desired for his covenant community and for people to be his covenant community and how to live. The law reveals our own sin and inability to follow the law. But the purpose of the law was never to save. Why? Because we already have the covenant with Abraham. Paul's point is never to bash the law. 1 Timothy 1.8, he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But the issue is that people wanted to try to use the law as a means of salvation. And that was the problem, because the law could never do what it was never meant to do. That's basically the point Paul will be making in the next section of Galatians chapter 3. The law does not replace grace. And it was grace which was given to Abraham. And it has always been grace by which people are saved. Verse 18. For... If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The law looks at what we do. The promise looks at what Christ has done. The law is about earning. The promise is about receiving. Jesus freely gives. Abraham was given an off, uh, a promise of offspring who would be as innumerable as the stars. It is in Christ that the promise is both fulfilled and given. Because it is because Jesus is the true offspring that all who believe in Christ can be the spiritual offspring of Abraham. As far as the land that Abraham was promised, Jesus is given the whole earth. Colossians 1.16 says, By him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. Jesus was given the whole earth and that his gospel would have a global reach. It's a gospel for all the nations. The promise included blessing. That's true both in the blessing to the nations of the gospel, but not only that, because Christ has blessed all who believe in him with every spiritual blessing. He has freely given us his grace. He has declared us holy and righteous. He gives us new spiritual life by which we are born again. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. He sanctifies us. He forgives us. He gives us spiritual gifts for building up the church and bringing glory to God. He invites us into the presence of God. He prepares for us a heavenly home. The covenant was made with Abraham. The promise was made to his offspring. And because the true offspring is Jesus, because he lived a perfect life, because he died on a cross, because he brings salvation, then the promises are fulfilled and unbreakable. And we have an inheritance that is imperishable. There are not two gospels. There is not an Old Testament gospel and a New Testament gospel. There is not a gospel of law and a gospel of grace. There is one gospel, and that has always been and will always be salvation by grace alone through faith alone. In the Old Testament, they did not yet have Christ, but they had the promise of God. They had the future hope of a Savior, and it is by Christ that they were saved. During the ministry of Jesus, he said in John 8, 56, I'm off in my slide. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It all points to Jesus and is all about Jesus. And perhaps the greatest example of this subject from 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We have the truth they waited for. We have the chapters of the book they never got to read. And the Old Testament, they heard about the promised son. We have the story of his birth. In the Old Testament, they heard about a suffering servant. We can see the story from the other side of the cross. In the Old Testament, they heard about a coming king. We're invited to come and bow down to him. Paul begins this passage with an illustration. Allow me to close with an illustration. Think about heaven. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to a savior. They knew that the Lord was going to bring salvation, and while they had prophesied, prophecies, while they had 
an idea of what the Lord was doing, they didn't have the full picture. They just had what the Lord had revealed. They had a picture, but it was incomplete. We have a lot of different things that we imagine when we think about heaven. We have various depictions in art and movies and our own minds. And the Bible does give us some glimpses, but it's something we can't truly imagine. It's just a shadow of the greater reality of heaven. With our eternal hope and future, we have more of the picture, but we too must look with hope and expectancy and trusting this good God who has always been faithful to his covenant, who has always been faithful to his promises, and will bring to pass all that he has promised for his people because he is a good and gracious God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness over so many generations. Lord, that the same God who spoke to Abraham, here's our prayers, sent his son into the world so that we can be redeemed when we believe in him. Lord, we thank you for your holy word through which we see the story. We see you working throughout time, throughout nations, throughout generations. Lord, may we look to that story, look to your word, and glorify you. And may we look to the cross and look to your son and rejoice in the salvation that you bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.